Quats. Are you, Bron Lamia, the layers of self-replicating, self-deprecating, self-amusing proteins beneath the layers of clay? Wheel of Genre, the podcast where every host is an instance of the immortal soul of John Keats. I'm Zach. I'm Bob. And I'm John Keats. <laughs> and, this, and this week we are finishing up Fall of Hyperion by Dan Simmons. What a journey. So where do we leave off with this book? We left off just as the ousters were invading, right? Yeah, the air quote ousters are now invading on every... The whole of the web, you know, yeah, not just Hyperion. Yes, the whole of the web. The forces of Mina Gladstone and the hegemony have moved all of their fleet or the majority of their fleet to Hyperion. And in doing so, they've left wide open the web for a ouster invasion that no one saw coming. Except we did get a little foreshadowing partway through the last book that this could and, you know, as you know, would happen. Technocore actually behind everything. Like, Technocore in the Farcaster. Destroy the Farcaster, job done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> everything else is really just window dressing, isn't it? It is, yeah. <laughs> they start to figure out that, yes, the Technocore has been using these portals, these ways of going from world to world to world. It was this free gift from the Technocore. It turns out that every time a human goes through that, the Technocore gets access to the neurons in their brain. So they have millions of neurons and every millions of neurons in every brain and millions and millions and millions of brains. So it's a lot of computing power. So that's the, how the Technocore has gotten so large. And in shutting that off, it's a great end because now the universe, the galaxy is totally different because no one can jump back and forth very quickly. They have to go back to their hawking drives and then just move spaceships through space, whereas before they could leap light years within seconds. I mean, yeah, it's a pretty momentous decision. I mean, it's, it, I, I find it very interesting, like the way that as far as I remember, it just comes to I think Umon tells the Keats persona about where the AI actually is, or at least he, he gets it in a dream. And then the way he describes it is quite interesting to Lee Hunt. He says, he describes them as being like spiders in the web, hmm. spiders in the web, weaving, letting us weave it for them, then trusting us and draining us like flies caught by spiders in the web. So I thought it was interesting you know, the way you've got the web and then you have to imagine AI is like the spiders in this web that are sort of hunting people right away when they're most vulnerable in that part in between the worlds that people are just taking for granted or overlooks and not really thought to check for them. Um, but actually, in doing so, they've been getting all this data on people. So I thought it was a very interesting analogy there, especially you know, especially when you read books like this, which are from like the early 90s and mm -hmm. you know, the way they were sort of like, they're not really innovating the language we use to describe the internet today. It's quite fascinating to see. Like you said, John, I love how they're using you know the same language to fundamentally talk about the internet. And by talking about spiders in a web, he's explicitly making the connection between the internet of today or of the early 90s you know, with the AI Technocore. To make a connection far outside of this book, I recently read Flights by Olga Tokarczuk. And what she says is the internet, you know, it promises all of these tangible things, but fundamentally what it delivers is a kind of hypnosis on your brain. And mm -hmm. I love how Dan Simmons can just kind of peer through time to kind of like look at the early start of, you know, internet cybernetics, you know, back when this is published and be like, you know, I think that fundamentally this is going to not be something good for us. You get that sentiment. I think there's just some idea that it's unsound to begin with. It's like a basis to to trust so much of your society, of your life, into these hyper-intelligent entities 
who you know we have no reason necessarily to think they have our best interests at heart i think is very very as you say relevant to contemporary books i've seen on the web today like where the algorithms are so giving us what we want but what we want is really not very good for us in a lot of situations here but yes it's it's hypnotic it's actually drawing us away from you know real life and you know you see the devastating effects of this in the book like it's a it's a momentous decision to destroy the to destroy the farcasters because as bob said like it's it means you know it's almost like imagine that the, the internet and all planes and all international transport were just to be obliterated to the possibility imagine people who work abroad people who have families in different places you know <clears throat> people who rely on that connection people who won't have any other way to get home who will just be stranded in in the world of the web this is not just one planet with 8 billion people this is literally galaxies apart with hundreds of millions a billion you know hundreds of billions of people so that the scale of how many people lose contact with their loved ones forever and maybe won't see them again for another 15 years if they see them again at all because of the way you know space time works and everything <clears throat> in this book at least Seen... you know it really is a devastating decision we see the consequences of them having trusted so much in the technocrats when he starts writing what's happening on all of these splits, you know, since they're portals, people mm. can walk through them. As soon as they say, shut down, they're all destroyed at the same time. But there are people wa- walking through them at the moment. So he just starts describing people were split in half. People were separated <laughs> from their family and they wouldn't see them in another 30 years. People, were, <laughs> yeah, people went into the wrong portal and ended up in somewhere else. Then he starts talking about all of the, the much larger repercussions. So there's all of these these gruesome things that happen and all of the small things, but there's also a lot of the attachments between different civilizations is suddenly ended too. And there's different repercussions to that. Here's a couple, here's a quote, like what, what Dan is talking about. He says, on Renaissance Vector, there was a brief spurt of violence followed by efficient social restructuring and a serious effort to feed an urban world without farms. Okay, that turned out okay. On Nordholm, the cities emptied as people returned to the coasts and the cold sea and their ancestral fishing boats. Well, that turned out pretty good. On Pavardi, there was confusion and civil war. On Soldier Coney Septum, there was jubilation and revolution followed by a new strand of ret- <laughs> retrovirus plague. So there's, there's all of these different crazy things happening on these different systems and they can't help each other anymore, but they also can't hurt each other anymore. Now everyone's totally separated except for communications. Not only is there no communication suddenly, there's no instant relationship between these places because they can't ship anything. They can't get their people back and forth. So now yeah, every each system is on its own to deal with its own problems many different worlds feel differently about this like you know on maui covenant like you you mentioned they're they're jubilant they're they're delighted that it's fine that's what they've wanted all along they've never wanted to be part of the web but then other places don't even know what to do and it's it, it does again we've drawn so many connections between the two books already but it really does remind me of dune as again mm-hmm. with you know the scattering and the idea that this is going to like revivify humankind and could lead to future evolution. The future evolution is what we need to do. Stagnance is what we need to avoid. And in this story as well, you know, the web represents stagnation. The ousters represent the progress, the evolution of man to adapt to worlds. And I say, and it's these basic dichotomies of, you know, when we go to a, a new planet, do we terraform it to suit our present needs, or do we adapt ourselves to this new environment? Yeah. And it seems clear to me, at least, that Dan Simmons is trying to push the latter, or at least the plot suggests that the, the, the way of the ousters, the way of evolution, the way of adapting 
rather than the way of changing everything to suit ourselves is the way to go and that stagnation should be avoided and that continuous evolution is is on us and that technology to some degree is actually preventing that evolution from happening. It's also a parasite-ridden stagnant body. Sec Hardin, when talking with Paul DeRay, says, humankind in the technocore, man and his machine intelligences, which is a parasite on the other? Neither part of the symbiote can now tell, but it is an evil thing, a work of the anti-nature. Worse than that, DeRay, it is an evolutionary dead end. So I like this idea of this like revivication of the hegemony actually comes as a kind of like not only a, a you know a splitting up and a resurrection, but also a kind of cleansing of its parasites, so to speak. Like like in getting rid of the machines there's a chance for humanity to get out of its evolutionary dead end. The Technocore is not totally gone. They just don't really have a relationship with humanity anymore because now there's the Metasphere. But uh, John Keats says that's full of lions, tigers, and bears. We don't really know what it does. But the Technocore is totally dead except for that. Yeah, so to rewind just a little bit, the Technocore has developed a weapon that when detonated will destroy... It's basically like a genocide weapon. It targets certain like brain waves or whatever. So you could have it destroy all of the ousters, for example. But you know the effect of destroying the ousters would also destroy the humans. So what the Technicore said was, oh, we know a place where all the humans can go hide from this weapon. It's down in the labyrinths. Now, good readers will understand the ploy being made here. The Technocore wants people to go into the labyrinths so that everyone could have a parasite on them. It's kind of a, a trap is what they're trying to spring. So what what the move is at the end of this book is they take this weapon and they put it into a Farcaster portal. And in the nanosecond between the weapon going into the Farcaster portal and the weapon emerging on the other side, they detonate the weapon. So presumably what they've done is detonated the weapon in the Technocore and destroyed the AI intelligences. Is that what happens? Well, we don't know. There are two more books in this series, so you can kind of imagine like, you know, if 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 they thought they had defeated Sauron at the first book of the Lord of the Rings, you know, or something like that, you'd kind of be like, well, we'll see about that. Yeah, so that that's kind of where we're left at the end of the book. Regarding lions, tigers, and bears, as far as I understand what's going on here is there is this kind of space called the Void Which Binds. And that is simultaneously everywhere. It's nowhere. It is the glue that holds atoms together. And and by entering into this space, people can, you know, go in from one point and then exit out in another point without having traveled or having to reconstitute their bodies or anything like that. So that's where the Technocore is hiding. Now, what we're left to understand is not only is the Technocore there, but there's other entities there, what they call the lions, tigers, and bears. And, you know, another instance of Dan Simmons pulling from the Wizard of Oz lexography. But also, we're left to understand these the ultimate intelligence will be there, the ultimate intelligence of the machines and of humanity. On a like book writing perspective, I feel like it's really interesting that Dan Simmons is going to take the biographical climax of John Keats's life and, you know, he has a character who is John Keats, but he's going to have us, you know, fall in love with that character, so to speak, I guess. And then, you know, take him to old Earth, put him in the hotel in the bed where John Keats himself actually died of tuberculosis and have us have him take us through that death scene again. So he's just kind of like 
copy pasting someone else's emotional climax to their story and inserting it in his book. I think that's really cool. I think that's clever. And it makes sense for the sci-fi too, because he has to die in order to go to see Umon this time because he dies the bodily death and he goes, he gets answers from Umon and then Umon kills that consciousness. So he dies as a body and then he dies as a mind inside of Umon, but at least Bronn gets passed on this information. And Umon is obviously a massive part of this, this story. And Umon, we come to learn represents one of these three factions of, the technocrat. He's one of the stables. So he actually wants to maintain this sinful symbiosis as as the Templar, the the, the vo- tree voice of the world tree. Hmm. Not uh, Saint Cardine uh, calls it the the symbiosis between man and his, and his thinking machines. He wants to maintain that. So he starts by tipping off mankind. And I think there's implications as well that Umon's kind of been tipping off the ousters as well and then offering hints or prophecies to certain people so trying to spread this message because ultimately he wants to, um, Umon wants to maintain the, the status quo over against the ultimates who want to create this ultimate intelligence, this ultimate AI intelligence and you know the volatiles who just want to sort of destroy mankind. <clears throat> and But I guess I don't really like, there are these two intelligences right in the future, right? There's the, the AI intelligence that gets developed, the ultimate intelligence, and there's the human ultimate intelligence that gets developed. And it seems like there's a like a link here. Like it seems like the ousters point the way to us eventually realizing this this ultimate human intelligence, this permanent evolution that's being stunted by the technocore right now. And then it seems like this story is like the battleground in the past of this future battle between these two AIs. Like, am I getting that right? Or I found this part of the book. Not between cute. two AIs, so so one AI and one I. Not one, AI, sorry. Yeah. Two ultimate intelligence UIs. Yeah. Yeah, UIs. Yeah, Dan Simmons really gives us the signpost of where Father Duray is coming from, but he's not really giving us the full picture, the full details. To me, it feels like if we want to really understand where Duray is coming from, we have to go outside of the text and look at the people who Duray is constantly citing. So here's here's what Duray says. Duray is talking with Saul, and Saul asks him about his time being crucified with the parasite. And Duray says, There was no welcome from a heavenly father, no reassurance that pain and sacrifice had been worth anything, only pain, pain and darkness, and then pain again. Saul Weintraub says, And that made you lose your faith? Duray looks at Saul and says, On the contrary, it made me feel that faith is all the more essential. Pain and darkness have been our lot since the fall of man, but there must be some hope that we can rise to a higher level, that consciousness can evolve to a plane more benevolent than its counterpoint of a universe hardwired to indifference. So, you know, the the polls that Duray is giving us is, you know, matter, universe, the material world that is fundamentally indifferent, painful, and unjust versus consciousness which is not matter, which is, you know, in a Christian context, spiritual, it's spirit, and it exists in the realm of something like God. So DeRay is constantly talking about what he, a person he calls Saint Tillard, who in our world is not a saint, is actually a Catholic theologian who was excommunicated by the church, his writings were suppressed, yada, yada, yada. But basically, Tillard's whole thesis is that the consciousness of humanity is evolving throughout time and eventually by the end of time the evolution of all of human consciousness will be the creation of god and the creation of god will you know i presume will be untethered in time and space you know but but fundamentally he was arguing that 
the omega point. Well, the time ceases to become a factor somehow in this future. I don't really understand how that would be the case, but the, therefore, the, the, somehow simultaneously, they're creating this thing in the future, but also it's eternal. That seems to be what it's saying. No, no, it's not that. It's not that time in the future ceases to be a factor. It's that within the void that binds for the yeah, for the UI. For, yeah, for the UI, time doesn't seem to be a factor. Because keep in mind, we're not talking about a materially grounded UI. The you know the the God you know the the Christian God who we you know see in this book, or rather are alluded to in this book, and the machine God in this book don't have bodies, right? They're not they're not walking around our universe. Though you could argue, well, maybe we'll have to talk about the tree of the Shrike, you know, to get into this more. But, you know, these gods aren't in our universe. They're fundamentally outside of space and time, which I think is like a theologically consistent position with, you know, Christian dogma, right? Now, so in that sense, yes, in the future, the machines create or find, you know, fundamentally succeed in evolving their own consciousness to be able to create a kind of ultimate intelligence but it's not like you know it's not that because that happens in the future you know that that god is only in the future if that makes sense because it's within the void that binds yes and the void with binds is like is one part of this triune is that right the human ui i think that he's trying to draw a connection between the christian trinity and you know what he has going on here so you have the the human ultimate intelligence, which I presume is, you know, analogous to a kind of Yahweh or God or, you know, father figure. You have the void which binds, which I presume is analogous to a kind of like Holy Spirit. You know, presumably Bron Lamia is tapping into the void which binds when she is able to levitate and walk, which is, you know, classic Christian miracle moves kind of a kind of a thing. And then you have the third in here, which is like the empathy, I think we were calling it. Yeah. Now, what we learn yeah. is that- Intellect, empathy, and the void which binds. Yeah. What we learn is that the the intellect, you know, the, the human ultimate intelligence stopped wanting to fight with the artificial intelligence ult- UI. So it sent mm. empathy back in time to be embodied into a human body. Now, there's obvious parallels here with, you know, Jesus Christ and, you know, you know the whole just the whole christian story basically but what we're led to believe is that this this empathy portion of it is still hiding somewhere it hasn't returned to the void which binds yet it's not it hasn't reunited with the human ultimate intelligence so as we learn yeah. the point of the tree of thorns that the shrike is you know impaling all these people on is to cause so much pain that empathy can no longer ignore human suffering and can then return and can then fix everything. It feels like the empathy is supposed to be Christ, and then the Shrike is supposed to be the Antichrist, and the Shrike is making other people suffer, whereas empathy would suffer itself. You know, Jesus suffers on the cross. The Shrike makes other people suffer on the tree. So it's like the Shrike is trying to track down Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's really hard, because I feel like we don't have a good... We don't have a good status or understanding of the Shrike as a character at all. We're told all these things about the Shrike, right? And the Shrike does all of these things. But the the Shrike that we're told about, which is this Lord of Pain, which seems really bad, but the the function of the Lord of Pain is actually a good function. And we're told that, you know, the Shrike coming back is either in control of the machine intelligence or the human intelligence, and we can't tell which. But what we do notice is that pretty much 
Every action the Shrike does throughout this book fundamentally helps our protagonist. He doesn't take Bron Lamia and impale her on the thorn of trees. He stabs her in the head and, you know, plants the shunt into her head and connects her to the techno core, which allows her to get the information that our protagonists need. Or impaling Martin Silenus, which allows him to complete his poem and rediscover himself as a poet. Yeah, I mean, he's, he grants wishes, like even to Lenar Hoyt, who obviously kills in the first half of the book. Nonetheless, he kind of wanted to die. That was his wish. That was so. his wish, yeah. And in bringing back Father Paul Duray, you know, we've allowed some amount of, you know, he brings back Duray and then transports him off world. So, you know, it's just moving the plot forward and allowing our protagonist to fundamentally come out ahead. You would think that if the Shrike was truly an agent of evil, the Shrike would be doing a little bit more to actually prevent any of this stuff from happening. You know what I mean? I heard a great thing about this book that what we have, and I think this this might be actually the only case of this I can think of, is a time travel story where we are not in the, the viewpoint of the people traveling back through time. This is a time travel story where where there are time travelers present who are changing the timeline, but we are the receptive perceiver of those changes. And I think that fundamentally that's going to create a confusing, mm. ambiguous, and... Oh. There's lots of retcons, and there's lots of times in this book where you'll be like, you'll think, oh, right, so the strike has been sent by the human UI, and then it'll submit something else to contradict it. And then, you know... the. the there's no there's very it's very difficult to understand what's happening in this book because it seems like you're told contradictory things the whole time yeah but like you're saying if that is a case of like there's a future war going on or a future conflict going on something going on in the future that is somehow also changing the past then obviously that's going to be the case and like you say if we're not privy to that we're not going to realize that so i I guess that does frame the book in quite an interesting way Mm. that kind of makes sense of the lack of sense as it were Well, I th- I think it's a good idea to difficult to follow in terms of plot and difficult to follow in terms of like details, if that makes sense, or like not details, but like motivations, meaning and larger lore, because this book, I feel like is quite easy to follow in terms of plot. You can read through and you get the gist of, you know, the rise and the fall quite, quite easily. This whole void which binds, Saul eventually calls it love. And I'm wondering how much can we really, do we believe oh, yeah. that? He has this this quote here where he says, Love, that most banal of things, the most cliched of religious motivations, it had more power. And they start comparing it to actual like subatomic particles. He says, the void which binds, the subquantum impossibility yeah. that carried information from photon to photon was nothing more or less than yeah. love. And so love is... Quote, learning as the learning able parts of the universe learned, loving as humankind loved. Yeah. Sorry, Empedocles type view. Love is the, the animating force. I, I think I had left that part out of my head, Cam. Love and Shrike. You know, because for for me, I'm I'm a little bit allergic to that kind of bullshit. <laughs> so like, oh, love is what, you know. You mean so you so mean love isn't the answer? Oh man, <laughs> it, it's it's too it's too Beatles, too John Lennon. So so for me, like, you know, I read that and my eyes kind of like glaze over and I just kind of like leave that out of my own. So what do you think? So what would you say? What What is like Dan Simmons's point with this book? Like it, he definitely wants to make a point about the relation between the technical and like mankind. Like, I think this sure. the, this conversation that DeRay has with the Templar who or the Templar, the Brotherhood, who actually have started colluding with 
the the Shrike cultists, and they decry the fact that you know mankind is working in some a simple symbiosis. What it says, like of like man and his machine intelligence. He says, which is a parasite on the other. The the uh, Sekhardin asks Templar. Neither part of the symbiote can now tell, but is an evil thing, a work of the anti nature. Worse than that, Jure, it's an evolutionary dead end, and. You know, the, so those two things are linked, like ha- this uncomfortable relationship of a man with his thinking machines, and but then also this idea that it's leading to an evolutionary dead end. They seem like two points that you really come back to again and again. I do think that's something he wants to sort of almost like advocate as his view. Would you agree with that? Yes. That seems to be something <laughs> clear that he's trying to say. Yeah, fundamentally, I agree that Dan Simmons is arguing all of these things. That being said, There's this weird sense when I read Dan Simmons that he can be saying all of these things, but that's not like the totality of what he's saying. He's not like a demagogue with just like one thing to say. To me, it feels like to me, it feels like he has a sack. Right. And, you know, there are larger objects in that sack and there are smaller objects in that sack. But as he walks around going through books, he's reading films he's watching, whatever. He's just taking up objects and putting it in that sack, you know? And then when it comes to a book like Fall of Hyperion, he's just going to take it and he's just going to dump it all out. And he's going to say... He's going to empty his sack all over He's going to empty his sack all over the page. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree with everything you've said. However, you know, what, what do you do with all the other stuff that doesn't fit that narrative? And by that, I mean the Keats stuff, the Taylor de Chardin stuff, the... I mean, you know, he references Peter Pan here at one point, and he has people who are followers of John Muir, the, you know, the existence of the ousters. Like, he has all this stuff to say about where humanity could and should go, but he uses the language of literary history to tell us about it. It's starting to get systematic, and I think you're right. It's not inconsistent. There's lots of things that are literature that are informing this. You know, even the planet is Hyperion, named after a John Keats poem. There is a lot of literature pushing this narrative. But I think one thing that's quite systematic is I'm, I like that you mentioned the cruciform earlier, because if you take a cross, you know, it represents Christianity. If you turn the cross upside down, it represents anti-Christianity, it represents the opposite, obviously, of it. Both AIs emerge from human thinking and the human brain. And so one is human technology and a devotion to technology and a devotion to expansion, 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 uh, without really thinking what it will do. There's no plan. It just goes beyond what we can control, which is not necessarily negative, but it takes on its own life and becomes something evil to Dan Simmons. I think a lot like uh, when we read Dune, Frank Herbert, they have that Butlerian jihad. They try and get rid of all the thinking machines. And in this we see the consequences of never take, never getting rid of thinking machines. It has made all the people of the hegemony really stupid, whereas the ousters don't use as much technology and they're listening to Rachmaninoff. You know, they, they, they love the classics. They love poet. They love poetry. And the other thinking is something that emerged with human consciousness, like the Teilhard de Chardin idea. But I think that we're going to see anything that represents old art and literature is in alignment with empathy and love. So is John Keats. And then anything that is like the Bikura, which is just reproducing human life for the Technocore, or just identically, but in sort of like meaninglessly a gradual decline. Yeah, because there is such a clear parallel between this parasite in the priest tale and mm. Bikura and making people stupider and this literally the drug calls it parasitic thinking machines yes. that similarly seems to be actually stunting mankind's growth rather than 
and gradually causing them to decline mm -hmm. rather than to develop. So th those two ideas are linked. And I think the other clear idea for me about what, what Damascus Simmons is trying to say that is self-linked into this is this idea, very similar to Dune, of just avoiding this evolutionary dead end mm -hmm. and that actually there's this other similarity between humankind or the hegemony and the technical, which is that both seek to prevent or even destroy any intelligence, intelligences that could rival their own. Mm -hmm. So human, the web of human beings want to essentially eliminate the ousters and they've eliminated other species, any species that shows the potential to become and to gain an intelligence, humankind wants to keep it down, or the hegemony wants to keep it down, whereas the ousters want, don't want to keep it down. Yeah. And similarly, the technical, perhaps because it's parasitic on mankind, perhaps it's made by man, it's too much in the image of man. They similarly feel threatened by intelligence that couldn't challenge those. And then that's why there's this conflict then between man and his machines, because they both have this similar idea about keeping other species down and causing this evolutionary dead end, not in, only in themselves, but also just in the, the world in general. And you see the effects on the world in general, by the way, hegemony is just terraforming and then destroying planets, destroying life on planets. Untold numbers of species are eliminated in the interest of the hegemony's survival and reproduction of itself as it already is. You know, you're building, they're essentially like building McDonald's and Mary Covenant or whatever, rather than becoming dolphin human hybrids or something. We've already talked about how thematically speaking, Dan Simmons' Hyperion Cantos echoes a lot of what Frank Herbert has to say in the Dune saga. But actually, I think, I think you guys are really narrowing down on a fundamental point that really they are kind of in lockstep about what they have to say about humanity's comfort with technology. Frank, Frank Herbert compares our use of technology to like the sorcerer's apprentice, you know, like once you take it out of the hat or whatever, like you can't put it back in. It just creates this whole thing of problems that come with it. Thoughtlessness, dependency, Frank Herbert would even say like mental slavery. And you see these ideas echoed throughout the Hyperion Cantos. They're just, they're just written in a different way, you know? you know using it's like using a different language to write fundamentally the same idea what i enjoy reading about the online discourse with with these books is that so many people are just they they give they read them and they they give warnings back to other people like oh yeah read the first hyperion but no further you know don't read fall of hyperion mm -hmm. but then for people who do read fall of hyperion they say oh stop there don't go any further for myself, you know, just kind of like a book in summary mindset, I I loved this. I, I don't think that anyone should stop at the first Hyperion. I think that it's fundamentally a different work and it's fundamentally trying to do different things. I don't know. What did you guys think? When I first started reading this book, I really didn't like it because it was just Hyperion again. It was a lot of just re retelling us who the characters are catching us up while moving us forward. And it took a long time for this book to get started. After maybe the first quarter or the first half, I thought this book was incredible. And I think you definitely should read it because it does. You can make a lot of guesses as to what direction it's going in after reading the first book, but you don't, all of my guesses were totally wrong. So it was very exciting to see what Dan Simmons is doing more, more clearly in this book. Yeah, I agree. The first part was a bit of a slog, uh, but to me, it was it was only a slog because it felt like a slasher film. And you know how a slasher film ends <laughs> with everyone mm -hmm. dead. So this time they're running around, you know, the tombs of Hyperion and getting picked off one by one. I was kind of like, okay, you know, <laughs> wrap it up. Mm -hmm. <laughs>
as a whole, the concepts that it introduced, the ideas that it introduced, the, you know, the imagery it introduces, I find quite, you know, appealing. It's something that I think I will keep in my mind and will serve very usefully me in the future in terms of like contextualizing new ideas and new books. I'll be like, oh, it's like that thing in Hyperion. I know it's like, so I think overall it holds up well, but it's a, a, for me a similar experience to how I felt about the first Doom book, which just I'm glad I read it. I love it in retrospect, but during reading it, I felt like it could have been edited down a little bit. I want to see what his vision is in Endemion, because now that we have AI, you know, there's now that Doll E exists, there is no reason to ever use Fiverr again to make anyone make art. That is totally over. So no illustration. Why would anyone illustrate anything ever again? I don't think anyone will. And then with writing, as ChatGPT gets better and better at writing, people will probably stop writing. Maybe there'll be a handful of people who still do it. So I want to see what Endymion looks like. Now that we've ended AI, what does AI try to sneak back in? Does AI try and get back at us? Does it come back? I don't know. But what does society look like post-AI? We've seen these people who live without it, the ousters. They have butterfly wings. They're weird mole people. They're all sorts of different, diverse, strange new kinds of humanity. But And they apparently love art. But I just want to see what that looks like from this author's perspective. What does a life look like after AI, especially right now when we have lots and lots and lots of AI emerging? And we could tell that it's ending many different kinds of art, or at least it's taking a big chunk out of many different kinds of art. You know, I, I might push back and say, I don't think it's ending. I think it's adding tools. I think it's augmenting art. But that being said, but, but I feel like the way... Can you imagine way, anyone ever paying anyone on Fiverr again, though? Well, so so here's the issue, is that I've used Fiverr several times, and fundamentally, you get what you pay for on Fiverr. If you pay $5 for some custom art, what you're getting is a is something that probably could have been made by Dolly. <clears throat> I think that for what you know, artists want to do, or people who care about their craft or their product, it's... Yeah, you use AI as a kind of like mood board or like first draft model. But then there you take the skills that you have and and customize it and make a bespoke thing, you know? I think I think that it's it's like Frank Herbert said, the problem with technology is thoughtlessness and dependency. The way people talk about AI and and the kind of like AI driven society that Dan Simmons gives us is one of thoughtlessness and dependency. So, yeah. It's a tool. Whenever you use AI or, you know, a chat GPT or whatever system, you know, service it is, like you're saying, it has to be as subordinate, as a research assistant, essentially, as, as a lackey, not as the, the, the thinking, the primary thinking, you know, element of this or creative act, whatever it is. I agree. There's a, there's a proper use of it and an improper use of it. But what will be the large effects? I can imagine... Dolly is not just a first draft anymore. It is extremely professional. And I could tell it anything I want and it will give me perfect images, things I could never even conceive of that are far better than my imagination. And I say, oh my God, that is what I'm thinking and I'm so happy with yeah. this. And then I can ask it to change it slightly and it will. There'll be little errors, but it's so much better than Fiverr. When you see that, I can imagine so many people just throwing down their colored pencils and be like, what am I even doing this for? And if that's the case, yeah, just go get a regular job. There's going to be tons of people who are just going to get a regular job. Does that make them like the Bakura? No, not necessarily. But there's people who were artists who, in were a way, they've not artists. developed their capacities in the way they would have done, right? Oh, That's it's, the thing. It's you get over, a better yeah. result, but in a way, people are becoming more like a Bakura because you mm. more depend, more dependent, and therefore less independent, less capable of creating something by yourself. Your your capacities are weakened. It sort of raises the question of why why you would do art in the first place. Exactly. Like, 
So it's, do you do art for the outcome or do you do art for the process, for the activity of doing it? So maybe it'll separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, there's the know. people who are only truly devoted to art and they will just make art for art's sake at this point. I don't know. But there's the idea of thoughtlessness and dependency yeah. and overusing something. But there's also the idea of purpose. And now there's lots of people who thought they had a purpose and maybe they were bad artists and they deserve to throw down their pencils. But there were mm. people who probably took great joy in making these illustrations who now will never make money on those illustrations and will give yeah. up. And maybe that's or it, it, Yeah, that's the difference of like, there'll still be the people who love doing art, but then there just won't be as many jobs for artists. And the quality because of anything, art will probably you know, anything go down. Now that might require an illustrator, so you can just get an AI to do it. It's not that deep. So yeah. you're just cutting off avenues for people to roughly work in with with their own skill sets potentially but maybe that will give us weird me no there's people going off the grid maybe they'll now be artists going off the grid living in the fringes creating art so they don't have to interact with any kind of ai but that art goes nowhere i mean artists going off the grid is fundamentally you know the real world equivalent of the ousters you know the origin story of the yes, ousters that's what i'm wondering basically. All right, guys, any any last thoughts to wrap up the fall of Hyperion? Excited for Endemion. So am I. All right, well, if you are enjoying what we do, you can support the podcast by subscribing on Patreon. Times are tough, but still want to support? Give us a follow, rate the podcast, all that stuff helps. Bob, John, good reading. I look forward to meeting back up for Endemion and Rise of Endemion. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, John Zach. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob.